The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from warbirdradio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening. I hope to hear from you sometime at warbirdradio.com. G'day, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran. And we're from Plane Crazy Down Under, Australia's aviation show. And you can find us at planecrazydownunder.com. We reckon for the best coverage of the Kiwi warbird restoration and aviation scene, you can't go past Dave Homewood and the Wings Over New Zealand show. On you, Dave. Yeah, good on you, mate. Yeah, we've got to get to New Zealand soon. Where is that anyway? Well, it's where I grew up. I thought that was Brisbane. The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Our next speaker will be Richard Stowers. Richard Stowers is going to have a bit of a chat with us about his uh, father's war in the desert, Flying Wellingtons. And uh, many of you may know of Richard's um, books that he's written and published in the last few years. Uh, he's done one on um, Cobra Cain, one on uh, Bomber Baron. Is it John Baron? Fraser Baron. Fraser, yes, sir. And, uh, and the most recent one has been about his father. Uh, what was your book? Wellington Soldier Man. Wellington Soldier Man. I knew that. <laughs> okay, so here's Richard. Good morning. Um, I put out three books on the Air Force, the New Zealand Air Force, and the order I did them in was I did Bomber Baron first, Copper Cane which was also printed in, in England as well. And more recently, I put out Wellington's Over the Med. Um, how did it all start? Well, Fraser Barron, I've met people related to each of the books, which was always rather nice. And I met the, the nephew of um, Fraser Barron. And he, he walks in and he says, I want you to do a book on my father. Uncle, sorry. 
and uh, okay, I said, but I've got no resources. Oh, I've got some in the car. So he comes, brings two suitcases in, and the, opens up the suitcases, and they loaded up with his logbooks, had his medals, um, and letters. Uh, not all the letters that he wrote, but probably about half of them, and, and heaps of photographs, real nice photographs. So I was in the element, because my father, being a bomber pilot, I thought, well, this is, this is I want to do this. So I ended up um, putting out the book, so, which was been very successful, which led me on to do the Copper Cane one. And then, more recently, it was Dad's book. Now, um, Copper Cane, I'll, I'll start with him. We all know Copper Cane, don't we? I, I mean, what can I say? Uh, he was the first uh, fighter ace of the RAF in the Second World War. He shot down 18 planes, not 17, 18. And he's only second to a Polish pilot who happened to become an ace um, just prior to Copper Cane. Cain became an ace in early 1940 and, uh, and, he, and he ended up killing himself. So we all know that. Um, it, it was, he must have been a lovely man. Everybody liked him. He had no enemies. Um, he was, when he went to France in the uh, Battle of France, he was trained and they flew out to France in hurricanes with the two blade, fixed pitch wooden propellers. And very quickly um, the hurricanes were upgraded and even before Christmas 1939 they, were, they went on to the three bladed variable pitch propellers which immensely improved the performance of the, of the hurricane. Now the, the fighter pilots, I don't want to go spend too much time on it, but he they were um, very tired, but they didn't sort of have go on rest breaks like they did in the Battle of Britain at that time. And all the pilots um, were flying like every day with um, no breaks unless the, the, the weather closed in. That was about the only break they got. And he was, he was out in France for something like nine months. And in the, in the last three weeks before he died, he was flying every day. And then they grounded him and said, you're, you're finished, you're going back to Britain. He was going to get married, actually. And he hopped in a little magister on this airfield to the, to, the west of, um, to the east of Paris. And he jumped out of the magister and he said to his mates, what did he say? It was something very simple. One more beat up me, lads. And he jumped over and hopped in a hurricane, which was parked further over, started it up took off, did some aerobatics, he was a brilliant pilot, did three thick rolls, three of them, the third one he stalled straight down, clipped the ground, and, and the plane caught on fire. Um, he was killed instantly. What, but the interesting thing was the plane that he did the aerobatics in was a two-bladed fixed pitch propeller plane variant and the ones that had been flying recently were the variable pitch three-bladed planes. So he obviously didn't understand or forgotten the, the power ratio. So he was burnt. This is interesting. 
all the stories you say, he was thrown from the plane across the runway and that, what have you. I've always mates sort of said, oh no, we can't, because he's a bit of a hero, we can't let the newspapers know that he, he was burned. He, he was strapped into the plane, he didn't get out of the plane, he was, he was burned. So, that's interesting, poor bloke. The other one, the next book was Fraser Barron. He did 79 operations, three tours. I think he only had two more operations to go and he was going to be grounded for good. He was, um, he did his first tour on Stirlings, on 15 Squadron, and then the second, two t and, second and third tours with the Pathfinders. And he was uh, one of the greatest pilots that New Zealand put out into Bomber Command. Um, he was actually in line for a VC along with, um, what was the other pilot, Dave? Who was it? Who got the uh, VC for? Hmm? No, for, no, an English chap. Um, for, for not for one action, but for Cheshire. Cheshire, yeah. He was going to get a VC in line with Cheshire, but since he was killed, they couldn't give it to him. Um, in, in the same vein as uh, Cheshire got his. Um, but, he also, but he ended up getting a what they call a full house. He got a, a DSO and VAR and a DFC and a DFN. So he was probably one of our most decorated New Zealand pilots. I mean, four decorations like that. He was the only VAR to a DSO to a New Zealander in Bomber Command. We only got four bars to the DSA in the Second World War, and I, I can't remember how many DS, um, 55 members of the Royal New Zealand Air Force got the DSA. Now he killed himself over Le Mans in France on a, on a softening upgrade um, just before D-Day, and he went down to 4,000 feet to see what effect the bombing it had on the railway station, um, holding, it, um, holding his bombers, bombers in a pattern further up. And he was flying along with his wingman, a guy called Dennis, in the second plane, both Lancasters. And they, some light flat came up and uh, didn't hit them, didn't hit the aircraft. But one of the planes moved to avoid the flat and they reckon that the two wings came together like that and both Lancasters went straight in. It was a terrible, terrible loss because all, all the crew, both the aircraft were very experienced. Um, his, his nephew actually lives in the North Island and uh, he's a lovely chap and um, he, was very, he was very pleased with the book. So that, which led me on to Wellington's over the bed. My father, somebody said here at the start that people never spoke about the war. Um, my father was a good example of that. Uh, I'd sit down at the table and I'd start asking him questions because I'm just a boy, I was interested. And he'd, Dad would answer my questions but that was it. He wouldn't say any more. He just didn't, didn't talk about it. Um, I heard about him talking about it to some other guys um, while they're hay, making hay or something like that or in the cow shed or whatever. 
I got little snippets here and there. And one day, a, a, um, a Shackleton, I think it was, or Lancaster, I'm not sure which aircraft it was, it flew across Mangatau Tree. We've dad farmed just up the road here, uh, five k's away, just along the side of the river, in front of the mountain. Had a dairy farm there, and uh, I can remember him saying at breakfast, here it comes! I didn't know what he was talking about. I looked out the window and I could, I could see an aircraft coming towards us through the kitchen window, so we shot outside and it went straight over our house, probably about 150 feet above us. And uh, it was fantastic. It's the first time I've ever heard a moon motor. I was only about 12 at the time. And because I started to ask Dad, you know, what is it? Because he said I was a Lancaster. I think it was a Lancaster. Um, might have been a French one. And uh, I got excited. I didn't know anything about this war, about Dad's war. And one day it was raining. I was, in the, I was over in the shed tidying up. I had a job there to tidy up the shed, um, sheep, no, um, shearing shed. And I saw the suitcase sitting up in the rafters above the yards inside the shed. So I, I, I struggled to climb up there and got it. And I dropped it onto the floor and opened it up because it was all dead stuff. You had hidden it in the wool shed. And because uh, I found photos and I found flowering helmets and gloves and uh, um, documents, logbooks, the whole lot was there. And it was a Aladdin's cave for me. And uh, because I asked a question that night at dinner time, you know, what were you doing in the shed? What were you doing up there? You didn't have any of it. But I slowly worked on him and I slowly got. Um, to get some information out of him. So, I, I didn't really interview Dad. Dad died when he was um, about 85 years old, about seven years ago. And uh, I didn't interview him until about a year before he died, because I started to realise, you know, gee, if I don't do it now, it's never going to happen. But he had Parkinson's. and. Uh, one of the problems was he couldn't speak very loudly. Uh, he had trouble concentrating for long, for any period of time. But I got a few good recordings of him, and uh, and it was enough to to write the book. And I got a, a public researcher in England to track down all the squadron um, logbooks for me, to just reinforce Dad's um, logbook, and um, and that's the result. Dad, Dad actually uh, flew 41 operations with 70 squadron, which was an RAF squadron. He was a Royal New Zealand Air Force member, but he was at like 6,000 other New Zealanders. He was attached to the RAF. And when he, he did his final training in Britain on Wellingtons, and he was crewed up, and he flew a Wellington from South England out to Libya. Uh, to join the squadron uh, via Gibraltar and uh, he spent the first part of his tour bombing along into Libya and Tunisia and then eventually the squadron moved into Tunisia and then they went across the Atlantic, um, Mediterranean bombing some islands, the, uh, Sicily and Italy mainland itself. So. 
end, and his ending up bombing right up north of Rome into Tuscany. This is the furthest north um, radio that he did. He crashed twice. Uh, a raid coming back from uh, Palermo in Sicily. Uh, they ran out of petrol, about 20 miles short of the base. They reckon about 20 miles short of the base. And they started to glide easily. Dad said that a Wellington glides like a, a sack of potatoes. So it just came down, down, down. And he said the most terrifying thing was I knew they were over the desert, not the sea, because they had seen the coastline earlier. But they didn't know where the, the sand was or the, the stones, what have you. And um, they just waited for the, the impact because they actually couldn't see the ground coming up was so black. That was, that was terrifying, but they survived that. Um, they had to take the guns out of the plane because the Arabs come around at night time to, to steal the machine guns, apparently, and had to put a guard on it. The base was only five miles away, as it happened. And the second time uh, Dad crashed was in Palestine when he was a, a, um, an instructor, a pilot instructor, and uh, at Castina. And the same thing happened. Um, he had, a, he had a, a trainee pilot with him, and they, went, they locked down the wheels, the land, and they realised that one wheel wouldn't lock down. So they, they put it up again to put it down again, and when I put it up, it wouldn't even go down. So they had one locked up and one locked down. And uh, Dad took over the controls, and they had a concrete runway at Castina. And, uh, but he landed on the grass because they were scared of fire. And uh, landed on one wheel, and then as, as, the, as the revs dropped off, the wing, the port wing dropped down, and once it hit the ground, that was it. He said it just went spinning around like so, but they all got out of the plane and walked away. The ambulance arrived, but they said, no, we don't ride. you don't ride in an ambulance, that's bad luck. So they'll walk back to the, the base. So, um, Dad's, uh, Dad was awarded the DFM, and uh, uh, in part his uh, citation, I'll just read you a wee bit. It says During the Tunisian campaign, he carried out a number of highly successful attacks on the enemy's heavily defended landing grounds and on the troops and transport concentrated in the battle area. During these attacks, often in adverse weather conditions, he showed great determination in seeking out, illuminating and bombing the targets allotted to him. Throughout the Sicilian campaign, which included attacks on heavily defended ports of Messina, Palermo and Catania, and during the blitzing of the Italian ports, railway communications and aerodromes, he showed the same undaunted spirit and cool courage, pressing home his attacks with great determination, no matter how stiff the opposition was from the, from the enemy defences, being German at the time. So, one word in there which is quite interesting, illuminating. Uh, it, some um, planes inside the squadron took it on themselves to, or they were allotted, by the um, uh, squadron command to, to do the pathfinding, which is interesting. And as Dave was saying, telling me yesterday that uh, 
the pathfinding was actually um, it started in North Africa and not in Europe, but they were actually ahead of Europe in, in the way they carried it out. But Dave said that they actually had a, um, a naval couple, some naval planes. Abacors, were they? Abacors. For the Wellingtons, yeah. And this was when they're flying into a bombing in Tunisia, in front of the Eighth Army, in front of New Zealanders on the ground, and the First Army, and um, and had Baltimore's um, as well, uh, who acted a bit like the pathfinders in Europe, that they'd go in and, and put markers on the ground. Sometimes they even formed like an arrow, like a free mark, drop big flares on the ground and formed an arrow, so they knew where to go. And I knew it was like 20 miles past that point or something like that. Um, there, there are other tactics too that, uh, that I reckon are far, far superior to what they used in go over Germany. Uh, one was that they were told of a, a blitz, a, a blitz like over Naples. They never bombed the cities. That's, that's something that's interesting. They never bombed the cities like they did in Europe or Germany. And they bombed installations like airfields, ports, railway stations, and railway lines, bridges, and um, things like that. And if it happened, if the spread of bombs happened to go into a civilian area, then that was bad luck. But they didn't actually target the, town, the towns themselves. And um, the idea is they'd have a blitz and they'd probably meet over a, t a railway um, station or something in Naples at, at one o'clock in the morning. And um, all the planes, 200, 240 planes, so big, big groups of planes. And it was Wellingtons mostly, <coughs> um, and Halifaxes. And uh, they'd, let, uh, they'd come over the target, but they can come in from any direction they want. And I'd give them like two heights, I'd, I'd give them say from 19,000 to 23,000 feet. So that they'd come in any direction, because the Germans just didn't know where they're coming from. And they'd have their searchlights going, and they'd pick up one, but they couldn't just go across and catch another one that's going the same direction, because the next one would be going across in that direction. And the night fighters had, had just as much problem as well. So I, I know in, in Europe they were bombing, I don't know, up to a thousand bombers in a raid, but it was quite common to have like four to six hundred um, aircraft bombing a target roughly at the same time, so they streamed them in, in the same direction so they wouldn't have collisions. So I don't know any statistics about collisions over it, Italy, but it seemed in a very effective way of bombing. Another person that's, that's touched my life is my father-in-law, Ray Ferry, who's, who's now dead. Um, he was a Ventura and Mosquito pilot. Somewhere down here was a Mosquito expert. And he was 487 Squadron. And I used to sit there and uh, have a few beers with him and he'd tell me all the stories. But one that really stuck, um, stuck in my mind was that when he was returning from a night fighter operation, he noticed that there, another aircraft was landing on the runway in the dark he did, when he was making his final approach, he saw the other aircraft. So, as the pilots did, if one was landing on the runway, you just pulled over and landed on the grass 
down beside the runway. And he came in on the grass, and of course there were some culverts, concrete culverts sitting out on the, on, the, on the surface that some workmen had dug a trench for that day for drainage, but they were still sitting there. And he took the mosquito right across the top of them, took the undercarriage right out, plane, I don't know what the plane did, but he walked away, and his number two walked away. But that wasn't the end of it. He was court-martialed. And the, the, um, because the Air Force thought that mosquitoes were far more valuable than pilots at that time of the, of the war. And he was grounded as a result. So he just gave a, gave a finger to the establishment. He could do what he liked for a while, so he bought a motorbike. And he um, drove around Scotland for six months. He had a wonderful time. So I was good on him. And he probably got killed anyway if he stayed in the Air Force. But the interesting thing about Ray was that he enlisted in Auckland on the very first day they took enlistments for the Air Force in 1939. And they had 13 men enlisted in the Air Force in Auckland on that day. And out of the 13, the other, he was the only one to come home. The other 12 were killed. So I thought, it's horrifying. So he, he flew in the war for five years, so I think he'd done his bit by the time he was grounded, so, yeah. Anyway, um, I, have, I have got books here. If anybody's interested in purchasing a book later, just come and see me, because I've got, I've got um, copies in the car, so I'm quite willing to, quite happy to go and get them for you, so, thank you. Thank you very much, Richard. That was really good. Jonathan Pope here would like to give us a story about the dam break to fill in. Quick fill in. Um, Quiet, please. That's all right. I don't mind. I'll shout louder. I've had the pleasure to meet several of 617 Squadron's pilots. Um, they're all rather overawed by their fame. My son is on 9 Squadron and refers to them as the Junior Squadron. Uh, However, one of the people I met was Jeff Rice. Jeff was one of the uh, captains. His Lancaster flew into the Zoyter Z. Uh, he says that going across the North Sea it was no problem and the spit of sand was uh, quite low but they, they eased up 10 or 20 feet. And then it was dark and uh, as he tried to find a, a suitable hide back another 50 feet, they hit the water. It was as if they'd gone into a brick wall. Um, in fact, he's adamant the aircraft didn't touch the water, only the bomb, which was pulled away. But the water came up over the bomb. If you know the Lancaster well, you'll know that in the roof of the bomb bay, which is 23 feet long from memory, there are a large number of little hatches about that big that you can grasp between thumb and forefinger, lift up, and there below is the bomb release. Uh, there may be a special tool for it, but I think the average screwdriver did pretty well. You could prod away any hung-up bomb. And uh, you, you can also see into the bomb bay from the back through some perspex and from the front. So after they're dropped, if they had the opportunity, the flight engineers would have a look, or the bomb aimer would have a look through the bomb bay. And if there were any bombs, he'd locate the release and just trip it so they didn't have to bring it home. 
The, cock, the bomb bay goes under the cockpit, the front of it, and Jeff said that as the aircraft slowed down, he was desperately trying to haul back to get it off the water, and the trapdoors beside him all blasted up and went up into the canopy with a column of water. And he said, I sat there for an appreciable period of time and watched the canopy fill from the top down, thinking, this can't go on. <laughs> And it didn't. And he got extremely wet. The um, rear of the Bombay failed, uh, and the rear fuselage and the rear turret, which means going through two sets of doors, filled with water, so the rear gunner literally nearly drowned. He was in a bad way, and sadly he was killed a year later. Um, and, and Jeff carried on for a little while and thought, well, we ain't got no bomb. Um, we don't have a rear gunner, really. There's not much point in carrying on. So he was one of the people, along with Les Monroe, who turned back. And because of that, probably survived. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, um, I'd like to introduce Barry Todd, best known as Bez. Um, he's come up from Christchurch, and he's a... Um, Madkin enthusiast for Austis and he's rebuilding an Oster aircraft at the moment and he's going to give us a little bit of a um, very brief talk on, on, on the huge project that is building a, an Oster that came in basically cardboard boxes, didn't it really? Yeah, and so uh, over to Baz and then we'll have uh, lunch after that. Um, just before I start, has anybody here flown Austers? Oh, thank God, I've got some company then. <laughs> um, I must apologise for the time it took me to come back inside because I went out to the car park and um, I'd arranged at lunchtime to meet um, a chap by the name of um, Colin Sutherland, who's an aircraft engineer, and he had a, a wing strut for my Oster. Well, when I walked out the door, this chap walked up and said, Are you Bears? I went, Yeah, it's just, I'm Colin. I went, Oh, Good timing. So anyway, um, I then had to try and shoehorn a three metre long Oster wing strut into the back of my rental car. So fortunately the, um, the centre seat on the back goes down, so now my wife's going to have to cradle this wing strut on the way back to the hotel. Anyway, so, um, <clears throat> I'm not sure how this talk of Oster's going to be received. I, um, I had a phone call from Greg McDonald in Christchurch, and uh, Greg is actually the son of um, I think it's Dave McDonald, who used to own the, the, the Civil Mustang back in the 60s. John. John, John McDonald, that's right. And um, Greg is also uh, an Oster enthusiast. He also has a Piper Pacer and a Miles Whitney Strait, uh, which is, he hasn't actually worked on at the moment, but um, the Oster comes first. Anyway, I said to him, oh, I'm going up to, um, going up to Cambridge and I'm going to be talking about the Oster. And he said, yeah, you're not, oh, no, no, he says, oh, that'll be great. <laughs> So I'm a bit concerned about how it's going to be received. Um, actually, this is actually my, my second project. I, I think I might talk a little bit about um, what came first. So I actually had a 1944 um, Mark V Oster. So I'll just hang on over here. And that's her there. Taken by four, uh, <coughs> seems to be taken by four members. Peter Lewis on there. Are you here, Peter? Yeah, there you are. <laughs> Another great Oster fan, in fact he's got a car with a number plate that's got Oster on it, which I, I wouldn't mind having. But I, uh, I've just found out that um, the number plate Aglet 
is available. And I have an Oster Aglet, so that's, um, that's going to be handy. Um, so, getting into an old aeroplane, you've got to be silly. Um, I was 21 years old, I was sitting at home, mum was in the kitchen making a cup of coffee, I was reading the press and I was mad keen on World War II aircraft, I always went to the aviation section of the paper looking for the occasional Mustang or Spitfire that someone was giving away for $20 or something. And all of a sudden I saw a 1944 Oster for sale. And I went, oh, first question, what's an Oster? I have no idea. So, of course, no internet. So I had to go get a book out, look up under A for Oster. There it was. I thought, oh, that looks pretty cool. Had the RF ramble on and everything. So I thought to myself, well, $10,000 it said. And I said to mum, I says, oh, it's $10,000. She said, oh, well, I, I could leave you some money. Oh, okay. So the thing was, I had no idea about buying an airplane. I'd only just started working. Um, so I was very naive. So you can imagine this sort of conversation. Back up the phone. Hi, um, I'm ringing about the Oster. Yes. Um, I can't afford $10,000. Oh, hang on a minute. And then there's the sound of a whispered conversation. And it comes back. Would you buy it without the engine? Yes. No hesitation. Okay then, it's done. So we went to the bank. Mum lent me $7,000. And I was a proud owner of an Oster, which I couldn't fly because it had no engine. I thought, that'll be no problem. Um, however, the Mark V Oster is powered by an O290 Lycoming. And um, they were not exactly thick on the ground. But... Um, my engineer said, well, there was a Mark V Oster that was modified to take an O320 Lycoming, the same as the Piper Cup. I thought, oh, let's do that. He says, yeah, well, we're going to have to talk to the owner because he owns the drawing for the, for the modification. So we did that, and basically I made the adaption for the um, engine mount, got the engine work done, um, and my engineer, who's Bob McGarry, who some of you may have heard of, um, he said, okay, we've done the engine, um, let's do a CFA. I said, okay. He said, I know the fabrics they found on this airplane on the fuselage. He says, but let's have a look at the wings. Okay. So you can imagine the wings were off the aircraft and they're standing on the leading edge and here's the trailing edge. And he says, let's see what the fabric's like. And he got his thumbs and he pushed in the bottom and they punched right through. And he said, it's stuffed. And I went, ah. He says, next step, rip the fabric off and you'll have to rebuild. Have a look inside the wings, see what they like. And so um, we did that. And, and amazingly, the structure inside the wing was, was in very, very good condition. Because as it turns out, this aircraft, which I bought in 1983, had never had the fabric replaced when it was built in 1944. So... It sent a bit of a chill up my spine because I'd actually flown in this aeroplane and at the time the fabric was rotten in the wings. So you can imagine all sorts of, or oh, it could have been, you know, ballooned up and ripped off the structure and I would have been dead. But anyway. So then I thought, well, if it's that old, is the RF marking still there? So I got some paint thinners and 
I started rubbing around about where the RF rounder would be. Oh, that's red. So then I went sideways. Blue, a little bit further. Green, and then let's, say, let's go this way. And brown. So the aircraft had been built in 44, so it should have been camouflaged. Um, I'd been told by one of the previous owners, oh, she was used to fly agents into France. And I, had, I was telling people, oh, this my aircraft has landed, landed behind enemy lines and you know, French agents. Fantastic. And then I got the history of the aircraft from England. The aircraft was built in 44, it flew straight into storage, and the RAF never used it until 1946. So that story was bollocks. <laughs> so, anyway, around about this time I got married, and unfortunately, <coughs> she didn't like aeroplanes. And she had to go. And, <laughs> however, my, my new wife does like aeroplanes. So, so, oh, just one other thing. Um, most people, when you buy something like an aeroplane or a car, you would do, do a pre-purchase inspection. My pre-purchase inspection consisted of driving out to West Mountain Airfield, shaking hands with the owner, walking around looking at the aircraft going, yep, that looks like the photos I've seen, getting in it, him flying off, we did a couple of stalls, he let me have a fly, I landed, I said, that'll do me. So nowadays you'd be pouring through the log books, you'd be interviewing people who, who knew the aircraft, you'd be interviewing the engineer and asking as many questions as you can. But being naive as I was, I had no idea. So, let's see where we're up to now. Anyway, Oster Take 2. So what we have here... There's nothing. <laughs> ah. Okay, so this is a J5F Oster. Um, now, it's not a military airplane, although um, I've since discovered there were a couple of um, air forces that actually did use the J5F um, as a training aircraft. Um, now, this particular one there, um, BCK, still exists. It's actually for sale in Ashburton. Um, on this day I saw it on Les Vincent's farm and the Vincent family are well known for us to say they actually had three of them um, and one of the sons is actually putting another one in the air which should fly this year. Now my aircraft and this aircraft and one other, all J5Fs, were all operated by the Canterbury Air Club and I learned to fly the Canterbury Air Club so my, my Oster is, um, is quite important to me because it's got that Canterbury connection. So my plan is to put her back into her original Canterbury Club colours, which is actually very similar to that one, silver overall with a with a red stripe. Um, now I'll show you a picture of my aeroplane. Yeah, uh, a bit of work. This is these photos were taken on the day that I saw her, and again, the pre-purchase inspection. Yeah, not so much. Pretty much. Um, the fuselage itself had been um, restored, as in fact the frame itself had been um, quite severely bent when it turned over in 1965 in a forced landing. Um, so that had actually been all signed off ready for fabric. All the woodwork had been done, um, but um, that's as far as the owner got. He, um, 
he sold his farm. He, he was in Rolleston near Christchurch, and he sold his farm. And when they went to this new place, his wife said to him, how much longer do you think it will take to get the Oster flying? And she said, he said, oh, probably another four years. And she says, well, you've got a bit of money now, and you sold that farm, when are you going to buy one sort of flying? And he went, okay, and without... Uh, <laughs> Before she changed her mind, he went off and found one that was already flying, which was uh, B&D. And funnily enough, that aircraft started at home on trade me for about 50000 um, And he basically parked that project up. Now, life is a way of um, starting a trail from way back, and then you, you meet up again. So here's the history of how I got this aircraft. 1986... My wife's brother, Shane Hyde, joined the ANZF. Now, he was stationed in Woodburn, and his next-door neighbour, who was also in the Air Force, was uh, Mr Shane Blassie. Now, in 1999, I happened to contact Shane uh, regarding an ad he had in Classic Wings. And he said, and I mentioned I used to have an Austin. He said, oh, I know a guy who's got an Austin. And um, it doesn't sound like that. Um, he said, we'd like to come out and have a look at it. I said, okay. So we went out to a Austin project in Rolleston near Christchurch. So I came out and saw this Austin. Very nice. Now we'll jump forward to 2005. And I married Teresa. Now sometime in 2011, I overheard my sister-in-law mention a Sue Glassie. And I said, oh, I used to know a Shane Glassie. You wouldn't be the same chap. And he says, well, yeah, that's right, yes. He's on Facebook. So I got in contact with Shane and said good day, and it was about the time that the space shuttles were being retired, and we had a bit of a joke. I said, oh, it wouldn't it be great to get one as a project, a space shuttle? And he said, oh, would you like a project? And this was a slippery slope, because he said, there's an Oster available, if you're interested. I went, oh. So I had a word with Teresa, she said, go have a look. Okay. So we went out to Rolleston. And it was exactly the same one I'd seen in 1999. So it's come full circle. So, okay, so I've seen the aeroplane and it looks, looks okay. Um, Shane was actually um, one of the engineers involved in repairing the fuselage frame. So he said, yep, no, no she's a good one. Um, the wings, um, one wing had had new spars put on it. Um, the other wing had been left pretty much untouched. So is, but is in good condition. So we go on to this. Oh, yeah. What was I thinking? That's me on the left. On the right is Bob Yates, the owner. What was he thinking? I'm going to get a new ute out of this. And when I turn up about a week later, here was a five-year-old Ford Falcon ute with him standing beside it going, this is what your money's bought. So the first, the first step is get permission. <coughs> My lovely wife Teresa seen I left actually had to convince me to buy it because I know from previous experience that aeroplanes can be notoriously expensive. Um, so I'm like it's a, a hole in the ground where you pour buckets and buckets of money. Next step, take it away. Um, fortunately, uh, my, my boss doesn't mind me buying the company ute. Um, so that ute's actually seen a bit of action taking uh, various Oster parts around the country, or around Christchurch, I should say, not the, not the country. And 
one thing is you've got to watch out for other Oster owners who are helping you, helping themselves apart. Now, this is actually another forum member. Can you see in the background, he's talking to his son, and I'm convinced, he's trying to convince Cameron, that's Anthony Galbraith by the way, that he needs this part more than Baz does. But Anthony, Anthony has his own project, he has an Oster T7 as well, and actually we do help a lot of, help each other out. Um, but there's a lot of fun along the way, a bit of grooming. Once you get it back, just scatter it all over the floor because you need to know what you have. And if you don't know what an Oster part is, you then look at uh, the Oster manual. And the Oster manual is very helpful because it doesn't show you any pictures. It is just a list of part numbers. So if you have a part, you can find the part number, you can go and look at it in the book and it'll have a description of what it is. But it might not necessarily say which particular Oster model it belongs to. So Bob had been collecting parts for probably 15 years, so as well as um, J5F parts, I had parts from um, Mark 5s, um, J1s, which were the immediate post-war model. Um, and the aircraft is going to be powered originally, uh, was originally powered by Gypsy Major, which I'm also going to be doing. Um, so, the only thing I'll say about Bob was he took the aircraft apart to every last nut and bolt, and that includes the engine. However, he didn't seem to be a fan of labelling anything. So, I've got lots and lots, as Dave said, boxes of bits with nothing written on the boxes of what it is. So, it's a bit of a, a, bit of a mystery tour. So as you can see, the cockpit seemed to be fairly much complete. However, um, not long after I got it, Shane Glasser said to me, you, you do realise you're going to have to take everything out again? And I says, is that because it's been sitting there for so long? And he says, no, it's because basically everything's been put in with minor 10 nuts and bolts. And I said, why the hell would you do that? And he says, well, he wanted to have it looking fairly complete for the 75th anniversary celebrations of the Canary Aero Club. So here I was with an aeroplane I thought was not looking too bad, but I soon had to start taking things off again. And the other problem is um, corrosion. Um, she was, although she was in a barn, the barn was actually open to the elements. And as you can see in the previous photos, um, a lot of the parts were actually in a big box which was open-ended open so the weather could get in. And in fact, the weekend before I got it, we had the big snow and um, 2011 and this old truck he had with all these parts sitting in, he had this back door open so he could show me the parts well he forgot to close it didn't he and when he walked around the back it was all full of snow so unfortunately things like this that's the brake shaft you can see there um, it's, some of it's surface corrosion and unfortunately some of the parts are actually unusable um, that one they obviously made him a new part for that so that's okay um, As you can see that um, she's getting less and less looking like an airframe and more like a jungle gym. And that's pretty much her with everything off, except I think I can see the flat shaft and the, the roof is still on. Um, but basically she is, uh, I'm glad I don't have to paint, paint strip the whole fuselage frame because that's, that is a nightmare, all those tubes. Um, but again, um, it's been about 15 years since, uh, 15 years, 12 years since the aircraft was painted. 
but he actually did a really good job because apart from a few minor areas, there's no rust on the, on the fuselage frame. Oops, one second. Let me... So what's worse than two Osters? Um, what's worse than Oster? Two of them. So mine on the left under the blue tarpaulin, and you'll see a bit of a wreck on the right there. So this is the mortal remains of Oster J5FZKBRA. So I'm at work one day and I hear my phone go. I turn around, oh, I get an email. And this chap saying, I've just crashed my Oster. I understand you're looking for parts for a J5F. It's a J5F. Would you like to buy it? Well, it's it's a bit like a donkey with a carrot. It's like, yeah, it's, it's, things are just out of reach. Um, I've been hunting and hunting for an undercarriage leg. Uh, Oster legs come in two sizes, uh, or should say two lengths. And I had two right-hand undercarriage legs, but none for the left. And at first I thought, oh great, here we go, here's another guy offering me a, a short leg, which is I, I needed a longer leg. But as, as I read through and realised it was a J5F, which had the long legs, the same as mine, I thought I might be in with a chance here. That's how she ended up. Now, when I saw the photo, I thought, is he speaking to me from beyond the grave? Because it, it looked pretty, pretty fatal to me, but... Basically, um, he had an engine failure, he was, do he was landing on his farm strip in Gisborne and he had one of his cattle walk across in front of him, so he thought, oh, well, I'll just go around again. Turned away into a valley, and opened the throttle at the same time and nothing happened. So he made a decision to go around to the left of this valley where the river was and land on the riverbed. Unfortunately, in front of him rose the pine trees on the slope of this hill. He clipped them, he sw it swung around dead centre in a pine tree and then he slid down the tree vertically until he hit the only boulder sticking out of the forest floor. Um, the good news for me is that um, it is a gold mine of parts. Uh, the wing on this side is stuffed, as is, so are the wing struts and the undercarriage leg. But the undercarriage leg on the other side, actually it's a right hand one I needed, not a left. The right hand leg is in perfect condition. So. I'm actually very, well not pleased that he crashed the aeroplane, but I'm glad I've actually managed to buy the wreck and get at least that bit off it. But I've got things like the, the wing fuel tanks, um, I only had one of them. Um, but all, the, the really big thing about this aeroplane is, because I haven't got a parts book which shows me where things go, I now have something I can go, I wonder where this goes. Oh, it goes there, and then I can put it on my aeroplane. It's, it's a bit simplified, but... At least you've got something that's in one piece. Yeah, must be getting close to 20 minutes. Where's Dave? He's getting twitchy by now. <laughs> um, right, so... We'll finish off with saying, why would you want to buy an Oster? Oh, no, sorry. The, where I'm actually up to is... Um, I've just started priming the areas of paint that just needed a bit of a touch up here and there. Um, but the goal this year is to have um, the fuselage all fitted out and Greg McDonald's going to help me put the fabric on, so um, that'll be a major major goal. It's been, it's been two years, 
Um, last year's not been a great year, especially with um, earthquakes and having to move out to get earthquake damage repaired and so on. So the aircraft suffered a little bit last year, but um, I've got good feelings about 2014. So you can see, I'm, I'm using, because the fuselage frame was a very light grey, I made sure I used the, the blackest poss possible primer so that when I paint the, the grey on, I can see the bits I missed. I, I was talking to a guy the other day who was doing a Piper Cub fuselage, and he made the fatal mistake of using a yellow primer to paint the fuselage frame, and then he wanted to put a top coat of yellow on the top. It's really difficult to see where you miss something if it's the same colour as the primer. But with black, I'm pretty safe. And I quite like the name of this, this description with the Gypsy Major, the roar of the Mighty Four. It's only 130 horsepower. I don't know what the horsepower of that boat is, but a bit more than the Gypsy Major. Um, it's, it's oily, it drips oil. It's, it's not the most powerful engine in the world, but it's, um, I think it's got a bit of character. It's, a, it's an old engine. I mean, the Tiger Moss started using them. Um, they've been in so many different aircraft types, not just Osters. It's a, a classic engine. So I can't wait to hear it run for the first time. And one day, this could be you. Um, so, so, why an Oster? Um, well, for people like myself who um, aren't rich and can't afford a Spitfire, or even a Harvard, uh, these aircraft are relatively cheap to get. Um, I, won't pay, I won't tell you what I paid for mine because I paid way too much for it. Um, but the Osters have gone on trading for about 50000 um, There's one just recently went for about 28000 I was just about crying when I saw that one. Um, but the other thing is that, um, I mean, even Airweather, they're, they're, they're half the price of a cub. But they're quite str strong aircraft and you can carry three people, sometimes four, um, depending on the fuel loadings, which is a bit more than a cub. Um, Landings apparently are the hardest part about flying an Oster. Um, it's not too hard to land, but it's hard to do consistently good landings. So I see um, bouncy bouncy in my early Oster flying career. Um, plus, if you can find one, if you're into your, your history, especially um, World War II history, if you can find one that is ex-military, especially um, a Mark IV or a Mark V like this one, which has just been restored to fly, this, air, this very aircraft was actually um, on the D-Day landings. Um, June 6, it was actually calling in artillery strikes um, against the Germans. Um, but if you can get get one of these, um, you know you've got a, a real warbird. It's not it's not as classy as a Spitfire, perhaps. It's pretty slow, um, but it's got that historical content. Um, and not just the Germans. I mean, the RWF used them um, in the Pacific um, and called in artillery strikes on the Japanese. And even Anthony Galbraith's T7 was used in the Malayan conflict. Um, the other side, I'm an engineer myself, I'm, I'm not an aircraft engineer, but um, I've always wanted to be an aircraft engineer. Um, from an engineering point of view, uh, the bit that appealed to me is that the, the different, different methods of construction all in the one aircraft. You've got, um, you've got wood, you've got fabric, uh, flying wires, although they're only on the tailplane. Um, You've got aluminium structure riveted together, which is um, mainly around the engine cowlings. And you've got a steel tube welder structure. And to finish off the front end, um, an oily gypsy major.
So if you want to get into an old aeroplane, you've got much money, I suggest buy an Oster. Thanks very much. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with